All right, the Diamond Dogs are right bloody back for an incredible new and long-anticipated episode on Wait For It. That's right, you've asked for it, we've got it, the second season of Ted Lasso. This is the Insatiable Content Podcast with your host, Vincent Rossmeyer. And now I've talked about this show a few times in my brief segments at the end of other uh, podcast episodes, but we are devoting this entire episode to Ted Lasso, um, and we're not partitioning anything out. Uh, like a perfectly, ba- it's like a perfectly baked and boxed biscuits uh, you only get once a day. This is a buffet of Ted Lasso, so let's dive into what this second season, uh, all about the second season, which I thought was excellent and one of the best things I've seen on TV this year. And to join me to talk Lasso and Keeley and Sam and Roy fucking Kent is none other than my good friend and fellow Lasso fan all the way from my favorite place on earth, Santa Fe, New Mexico, the one, the only, Danielle Von Drack. How are you? Nice to, so nice to have you here. Hi, it's so nice to be here. I'm great. How are you? I am excited about this. I'm excited about our conversation. I know you're a huge fan um, and we've been talking about this show for quite a bit. Um, And so let's just, let's get out on the pitch and and start like discussing this. So um, I would love to know how you came about being a Lasso fan, and I'll just give you my like relationship to this show. I started, I, I did not immediately watch this show when the first season came out um, on Apple during quarantine. I think it was a bit over a year now. Um, I had heard the reviews talking about it and how it was relentlessly positive and joy-filled, and I looked in the mirror and said, nope, that is not a show for me. If this show, if a show isn't nihilistic, how the fuck am I supposed to enjoy it? But then I finally broke down after the second season came out and started watching it, and I found that just like seemingly everyone else in the world, I could not resist Ted's charms, uh, especially the supporting characters, and immediately became Hook. Uh, and so watched the entire first season and then uh, just finished up the second season. So how did you, do, I hope you had a far less cynical relationship with the show and, and found it uh, and, and we were just happy with it from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I kind of had a similar experience in that I'd heard about it here and there, but I honestly, I guess I just don't pay that much <laughs> attention to like reviews and such um i also think sometimes i become uh, overwhelmed with content and a lot of times people throw recommendations at me and are like i think you would love this i think you would love this um and especially with shows that have already ended or that are really large they feel too intimidating yeah completely agree yeah and i i just started recently actually and just the same um so it was my friend amanda and you that both recommended that I watch it and said that they thought I'd really love it. And then the second I started it, I was just so hooked. Like (laughs) I just so desperately like want Ted to be real. He's just so (laughs) unbelievably like charming and heartwarming, but he just gets better and better the more his character unfolds. And then you're right. the, The supporting characters, the relationships, I think also knowing I've been a big, big Jason Sudeikis fan for a really long time. Um, I love sleeping with other people. Um, I actually also really liked Colossal, even though he was a colossal dick in that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think this is the pinnacle of his career and really shows what he can do as a writer. Um, and to see the writing of such a 
beautiful, complex character come to life through his own acting is like something truly magical. Um, I think this role was perfect for him. I think this is the height of his career and it's just so exciting to see that this is what he's doing. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And like, I've liked him in the past too. I love the movie Horrible Bosses. He's in that and he's quite good in it. (laughs) But again, playing a dick. And so it's just so interesting. I think he fits the dick role really well, but in this, it's just the opposite. And yeah, yes. he, he's unbelievably charming. Even even when he's his persona and talking about the show when he's actually Jason Sudeikis and not Ted Lasso, like when he was at the Emmys or things like that is just unbelievably great. Yes, yeah, he just, it, it's almost like it's brought out this like more exuberant, heartfelt side yeah. of him, which I felt like was always there. Um, and uh, if you haven't seen Sleeping with Other People with Allison Brie, it's like a like offbeat rom com, and I highly recommend because I feel like he kind of melds like dick and heartfelt really well in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like this is so nice to see all of those like characters kind of come together and just be like such a complex, full, real human being, but that just like. Mm, I'm also kind of cynical, so I don't genuinely <laughs> believe like one person can make the world a better place. But in watching Ted, you're like, oh shit, one person can make the world a better place. It's- like if this person was on the planet, the world would be better. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And that, that gets us into, I think, the first thing that I liked, and it sounds like you liked too, which is just the relentless optimism of the show. And again, like... I had someone tell me this week that I wasn't as much like Larry David as I thought I was. And that was like one of the most hurtful things someone has ever said to me because like (laughs) he is he is my God. But, uh, you know, as just someone who's generally pretty pessimistic, I think, you know, especially about like the things I like to watch. And I generally find my, my problem with things that are like positive or way too optimistic is that they just verge on the saccharine. Um, Or, you know, you don't want to get in the world of like a CBS sitcom where it's only the people going to the early bird specials that are going to enjoy something. But this show has just like this boundless optimism that is so infectious. And I think there's a direct parallel to the way Ted wins over people in the show with his charm. Like I think specifically Rebecca and bringing the biscuits every day and the unwavering positivity he has no matter what happens and how this show can convert even the most pessimistic of audience members, such as myself, into like full-on believers. Um, I feel like this show has like a 100% uh, favorability rating with all the people I know and I've recommended it to. It's not one of those shows like, you know, like Deadwood is one of my favorite shows ever, but I'm not going to recommend that to everyone. Um, And I think this show is so commendable because it really does an amazing job of straddling that line between optimism and mush and never veering into the mush side, um, except for yeah. what I think we should talk about now, which is the Christmas episode. And it's part of the reason I wanted to have you on, because it's like the only episode of Lasso I didn't, I don't dislike it, but it was too much for me on the sweet side. And you loved it, right? I did love it. And I think the reason I loved it was, um, and to be fair, I can completely see why it's fully mush, but I guess I loved it for a lot of reasons. Um, The first one being that just the sheer um, element of all the different players coming over and bringing food from their hometowns and they're not, you know, they're not able to be with their real, or not real, they're not able to be with their biological families for a holiday. So this element of all 
coming together, sharing dishes, sharing their own culture um, is really similar to my childhood. Uh, so my next door neighbor since the age of seven, um, who I call my Ita, like my abuelita, um, is from Costa Rica. Uh, and I grew up in Utah, which is very, very white. <laughs> Indeed it is. Um, yep. <laughs> super duper white. Um, and it felt like being transported into all these different worlds because her friends were Guatemalan, her friends were Costa Rican, her friends were from um, all over different Latin countries, but also a mix of bi, straight, queer, trans, and just like, and I mean, then we're talking people in their 60s and, and such, and just such an amalgamation of different cultures coming together for holidays specifically. And the Christmas episode made that feeling of home and chosen family come to life for me. It, I felt like I was seeing my family Christmases on the screen of like, these people aren't biologically my family, but they're my family. And they're the people I still call when I'm in trouble. That's awesome. When I'm sad. Um, so I think, I think that's the first reason that I loved it is because it might be mush, but it was nostalgic mush. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, I'm just such a huge advocate for chosen family. Yep. That's what it really felt like. It's like the soccer family is a family on and off the field and to see them like out of context and like, I don't know, all the little subtle jokes about like Danny making a joke about mezcal and uh, uh, spiking the ponche, which is like a thing I've had before. Like that was super fun. <laughs> um but the second thing I loved it is it actually really made Higgins a fledged character. Which for me. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually that I'm glad you said that. So I, I think your argument was fantastic about the Christmas episode, but his back half of the second season was just amazing. And now he's like, he's like one of my favorite characters on the show. For those of you who yeah. haven't seen it, he's essentially the second in command to the soccer team that Ted and I, I truly am not going to give a full plot summary here, but you should know that this is basically Ted Lasso, football coach from the Midwest, comes over, gets hired uh, in a revenge, spiteful hiring by this woman named Rebecca, who has inherited the soccer club from her husband, who she's now divorced from, and that was part of their settlement. She's now running the club. She hires Ted to run the team into the ground, um, and he doesn't do so. Uh, well, sort of. Now, they, at least, you know, the team gets relegated up the first season, but the Higgins character is essentially her second in command. And yeah, he becomes a more and more fleshed out character in the second season. And I just, I love him. Anytime he was on the screen, I, by the end of the season, I, I was happy. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think his evolution too was like seeing, he's played as this complete pushover and he is, he is, but in such a heartfelt, sweet, genuine way and I think you know first season Higgins pushover is like you know fear doing whatever Rebecca wants money yep. whereas second season pushover is like just wanting everyone to be happy and willing to sacrifice his own comfortability like when Dr. Sharon comes in and sacrifices his office and then it becomes a joke of like he doesn't have an office and he's in the janitor's closet like yep. um that starts to show that like oh this person just genuinely is heartfelt and really cares and I think having the whole team over in the Christmas episode and that it's something he's always done but the whole team shows up is like really showing I don't know showing his heart and just showing like where where his cards lie 
um, in a way that wasn't fully shown before. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think to that point and to our larger point about optimism, it also shows that this show believes so much in its characters that it, and Sudeikis is so comfortable in his own role as a creator that like there is this optimism of like never give up on anyone and you know like yeah. it, whether it's Higgins or Rebecca doing negative things in the first season like you never give up on anyone and like this is a lot about personal growth and I think that's really cool and I think also for me like the optimist optimism is well placed here because it comes across as genuine um, because it's it is so often hard fought with these characters they're not just all positive or loving Ted from the beginning uh, I mean you look at Ted's divorce in which he lets his wife go because he knows it's the right thing for her even though it isn't for him Rebecca's initial betrayal of Ted during the first season and then the subsequent rede- redemption in their friendship to like Rupert Rebecca's ex-husband's mistreatment of her to the friction between Roy and Jamie, this is a sh- isn't a show that just arrives at happy endings, like I'd say aside mainly from the Christmas episode, without doing the hard work of cultivating the conflict in between. And so for me, at least, it's like the optimism is all worth it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually that kind of leads into one of my, one of, if not my favorite moments on the show altogether, which is the moment in the pub when um, Rebecca and Ted are with Rupert and Rupert's new girlfriend, fiance, whatever, whose name was also Rebecca. Yep. Um, and they are playing darts. Um, and basically this, this setup is that um, if uh, Ted wins, then Rupert is not allowed to be in the owner's box for games. Uh and Ted basically hustles Rupert. And, yes, he does. Um, he hustles him so good. Um, but my favorite line comes from that segment. Uh, and I think it becomes more poignant later when you find out the full story. But um, he said to Rupert, you know, the difference between men like you and men like me is that men like you always bullied men like me because I was curious. And from the age 10 to 16 in a sports bar after school with my dad until my dad died when I was 16. And in these moments, he's throwing the darts perfectly to get the points that he needs. Uh, But I think about that so much of thinking in moments in my own life when I can remain curious. In moments when I think that's when the optimism comes in is it's not just pure purebred everything's going to be all right but what happens if i ask questions what happens if i learn what happens if i continue to give people the benefit of the doubt yep um and not just assume and i think same with like ted's forgiveness of rebecca yep when rebecca admits her initial kind of betrayal to him and he wholeheartedly forgives him and it just brings tears to my eyes because he acknowledges that divorce is crazy and that people make mistakes. They do. Um, Yes, they do. (laughs) And, and, uh, uh, but, but that element of staying curious, I think even myself, sometimes I feel this pressure to know everything, to know the answers to everything. And it's like, well, what's the point of living? If I know everything, what's the point of being here? If I don't ask questions, I just, lost an opportunity to learn about someone, to learn about myself, to learn about something new. Um, And then later when you learn that Ted's dad actually committed suicide, which is tragic and um, then makes sense as to why 
Ted believes so wholeheartedly in his optimism. Exactly. It just makes it so much more. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. And that sort of leads us into like well, the second thing that I liked is that there, the as I mentioned on a previous podcast, it was there was this derision from critics about this season that there was just a lack of conflict. And um, I, I, if people could have just been a little bit patient and gotten to the second half of the second season, like it's less a you know soccer pitch and more a minefield with the amount of conflict that arrives by the end of the year. And what's so interesting for a sports show is that the conflict here is like 99% off the field rather than on it. And it, it all it, it's also funny because like for a show about a soccer coach, you don't really care about the soccer as much, right? And um, I think the thing, there's so much tension in the second half. Uh, it's really, really engaging. And so like I, do you do you agree with that? Like, uh, you know, like the sports on a sports show are almost like in the background and like this whole criticism of the show, lose, like not having conflict was like pretty off. Uh, a, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not a huge sports person. I'm not watching it because it's a soccer show. I'm right. watching it because of the characters and because honestly, I like it's a show that happens to be about soccer. Kind yes. of the way I felt about Queen's Gambit, where it happened to be about chess. Great, and it great makes chess so exciting. But and same about this is like I, I mean, I'm rooting for them and want them to win in a way I would a real soccer team if I cared about soccer. So that <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like that. I think that element of maybe like excitement and anticipation and dedication and loyalty is facilitated through a show like this. Yeah. Um, Sounds like your dog agrees too. Yeah. Without caring about the actual soccer. (laughs) Well, I also do. I completely, uh, another thing I read about like the criticism of this season is that season one had a real like through line is like almost like a sports movie, like, you know, um, like underdogs overcoming and so on and so forth. Uh, And that there was no through line in the second season. And I think if everyone had just been fucking patient, like you said, um, the through line really is mental health and like character development, but there's a big mental health undertow on so many different levels. And I think it's so much more rewarding. Um, In some ways, because it already did the work the first time around in the first season. So now that that groundwork was established, like we can get into the nitty gritty. We can get into who these people are. Um, I I agree. And like the soccer teams and the teams regulate relegation, uh, which we really need in basketball and other U.S. based sports. I I think relegation is a great concept, but but the obvious storybook ascendancy back from that and really is really like one of the most minor uh, plot points of the entire show. And I think it, it makes it even better as you were talking about as a sports show, because like it re- actually reminds me a lot of like the, one of the reasons I love the NBA, which is a ne- never ending soap opera that is sports. And that so often in sports, the real conflict occurs mainly outside the li- lines rather than in them. And one of the best parts of recent sports culture, in my opinion, is this growing awareness about, as you alluded to the mental health of athletes and how we're now suddenly aware of that. And they're not just automatons that with these amazing gifts that are this there for our amazement. They're people with emotions and what happens in the locker room and away from the facility affects them as much 
much as the pressure is in any game. And to me, this show really delves into that, not just from like a player perspective, but also the coach's perspective and Ted's battles with anxiety. And, you know, uh, ultimately the big, you know, spoiler alert here, the big seconds, the big heel turn of Nate becoming going from like the Wunderkin and Ted's Ted's friend to his uh, Darth Vader. I mean, even his hair changes. Um, it's just like such <laughs> yeah. a potent thing of conflict. But that is to me, like that wasn't just about what was happening on this on the field. That's not why Nate made that turn. Um, it, it, you know, I, I think of the indignity he felt when he tells Roy that he had tried to kiss Keeley during that uh, when they go to get uh, their clothes, like him all dressed up uh, and get a suit uh, for this event. And Roy is just like, yeah, I don't care because he doesn't feel Nate is a threat at all. And this goes feeds into Nate's narrative that Nate is always overlooked. His father's under, uh, you know, undermined him and underestimated him his whole life. And so ultimately he's directing all this anger and he becomes the baiter because, at, to Ted, because he can channel all his, that anger that he has at his father at Ted. And, you know, that makes his arc understandable if it, if not necessarily forgivable. And when you look at the like, way the season ends with the possible dilution of Roy and Keeley's relationship, where Sam and Rebecca are, Rebecca and Rupert, and what that forebodes in the future. To me, it's like, to say the season was without conflict, and I know you're a vegan baker, so we're going to have to, I'm going to have to drop like a little line here about that, but that is like, it's like getting one of your like vegan cupcakes, licking all the frosting off, and then saying like, hmm, this is only a piece of cake. I really wish there was some frosting on it. It's like the conflict was there the whole time. Like you were just ignoring it or yeah, it already got consumed. So I, I really like that about this season. I thought it, I actually think the second season was better even than the first. I, I completely agree. And I think that's, I mean, a very funny, but pertinent, um, like parallel to draw because I think this season had more meat and more depth and I think there was more overall flavor and all the components needed to go together because um I think something my uh friend and other lasso fan Amanda pointed out to me was that um the scene in with when Nate confronts Ted and says well you don't have the picture I gave you up in your office, but we know as viewers that it's actually in Ted's home. Yeah. Which is so much more intimate. It's on his bedside table. Um, but Ted is so humble and so gracious that he just apologizes. He doesn't get defensive yep. and he doesn't say, I'm sorry, but you know, as the viewer, you know how much Ted actually cares and how, um, you know, how proud he actually is because you wouldn't keep something on your fucking bedside table if you didn't genuinely care and support someone and find it like so heartfelt and you know intimate um but he doesn't bother to tell Nate that because he also kind of already knows that there's nothing he can do at right. that point he's like the ideal no someone. right and he's like the ideal person who can uh, like he handles apologies and accepting other people's emotions in like the ideal way. He doesn't argue. He doesn't get defensive. You know, I wish I could do this. He's just like accepts him and is like, I hear how you, I hear how you are. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Let's get into the third thing I think you and I both liked. And I think this again ties back to the Christmas episode. It's all the pop culture references and they're, you know, they can sometimes become too much. And like in the Christmas episode, it's basically 
every single romantic comedy based around Christmas is jammed into this single episode. Um, right. But it's really enjoyable. I actually really like it because I think they work them in rather seamlessly and you don't have to get them all to get the show. It's never heavy handed and it doesn't distract from the actual themes of the show. Like I just I, I saw some of that show only murders in the building on Hulu and all it's all references in a way that just feels like there's no substance underneath. It's just references for references mm-hmm. sake. And this is like. You know, my favorite in all of this was Ted doing the practice bit um, in season one where he's channeling the legendary Allen Iverson practice where he's like, practice? We're talking about practice? But there are so many more from a from like I was saying to the Christmas episode to like my one of my favorites is like the beard episode where he with assistant coach beard is just profiled in an entire episode. And it's a direct homage to Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And I would say like. 99% 99% of the people who are watching this show have never seen After Hours and like don't understand the New York art scene and the weird movie that it is. But you don't have to get it. For those of us who have seen it and get it, great. But you don't have to get it to love the episode. And so those cultural Easter eggs really are fun as for me as a viewer to see and discuss. Yeah, and I think that's a great point too. And I think something that's so... You're, you're right on the head about like you don't need to get them for them to be pertinent because they're not they're not plot references and exactly. like you said it's their substance underneath them but I also think something it does so seamlessly is like I honestly wish my dad was still alive to watch the show because I genuinely think he would love it and there's a lot of parallels between him and Ted mm. I think um, but there's genuinely references for every age group. Like, yes. I think it it handles generation, like it bounces between generations so beautifully and seamlessly. And I think also handling like uh <laughs> one of my um one of my favorites is like in the very beginning when he tells Rebecca when Rebecca says uh well, you know uh she says I'm sorry, I have to go to a branding meeting. And he makes a joke about branding cows. And she stares at him so blankly (laughs) because he's so British and he's so Midwestern and having Midwestern family. Like the fact that he just cracks himself up and he makes a joke about, you know, if we were in Kansas right now, I'd have to wait for you to finish laughing because you'd be cracking up. (laughs) They're they're dad jokes in a way that is so heartfelt. Um, But then my favorite personal pop culture reference. I love the Love Actually reference in yes. the Christmas episode. There's so um, many. With, yep. With his niece. Yep. Um, with uh, Wonderful, with Phoebe. But my absolute favorite is in Dr. Sharon's Goodbye episode um, when he makes them learn the NSYNC dance. Yeah. Because, <laughs> A, the fact that this like Midwestern man loves NSYNC so much but then also I loved NSYNC so much like, to have that cross generations like that is so fucking funny but also so fun and that he's teaching it to a group of like 23 year old soccer stars yep. it's hilarious and it's so <laughs> unexpected when they do it in the show like that's the thing it just oh, keeps you on your toes like the references just come out of nowhere and you're like oh I love it yeah well, it's also set up, that one in particular is set up in a way that you think they're doing something on the like soccer pitch. Yes, exactly. Something related to practice, but he's making them learn dance moves. Exactly. <laughs> and he's making them learn bye, bye, bye to say bye to one of their, like, to their 
teen therapist, essentially. Like, it's beautifully woven in. And you're right, it's so seamless. Like, you don't expect it. You don't see it coming. Half of the references you probably miss if you weren't it's, looking for I agree. Them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's clever. And I think it shows how much the, like, the not only the writing, but the cinematography is like so um, pertinent and also like it it's deliberate. That's the yep. word I'm looking for. I, I think you're um, completely right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's get into the fourth thing that uh, to talk about here. And for me, this is probably the thing, it might even be the thing I like the most about this show, and that's the depiction of friendship. Um, and you don't see friendship, you see romantic love depicted in culture and movies and things like that, but you don't always see just true friendship, especially in movies, not about like teens. Um, and the friendships and relationships on this show are so complex and wonderful and they're not stagnant. They change over time. And I find it so irresistible to watch. And like, I think like. Ted and Beard, Coach Beard, are just such a wonderful pairing where like Beard, anytime something bad happens to Ted, he's going to be outside his house the next morning with the coffee. And they have this like unspoken depth to their bond and they know what each other needs no matter what is happening. And they they don't always really talk to each other. They just can feel each other and be there. But I love the whole idea of the diamond dogs, which I know is like a huge (laughs) fan fan favorite. But then there's like Ted's relationship with Rebecca, Rebecca and Keely, Roy and Jamie, like bonds but the bonds between the teammates i think especially of keely and rebecca and how that became merged went from just friendship to mentorship and rebecca becomes like both a better friend and a better mentor by the end of the season because she's like i see that keely is like starting to like want to grow and i'm gonna as a as her true mentor i'm gonna say go and do your own thing you're gonna leave the team and I'm still going to support you on that because I'm a friend and someone in your life. And I just wish there was more of this on TV where, um, you know, friendships are so important to all of us. They're such a main reason that, like, it makes life worth living. And it's just good to see people be good and kind and thoughtful to each other in a way that isn't saccharine. And it's it's just refreshing. Absolutely. I also think, too, so many shows get female friendship wrong. Uh, um, uh, yeah. I'm not a female, so I shouldn't even be saying yes, but like, yes, I agree. I've heard this many times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think because there's either this element that it's like all roses and daisies and like, um, I don't know, really cliche and surface level, um, or that there's this element of like two-faced backstabbiness to it. Um, and I even, I actually love the episode where, um, Rebecca's starting to date again and Keely is gone for the day. Uh, and Rebecca's like, I need someone to girl talk with. And Ted jumps in and he's like, oh, so girl, girl talk is really just like stating facts. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's hilarious because there is an element that feels like, um, yeah, sometimes if I get together with like girlfriends that just talking about nonsense, uh, but the way they depicted it in the show and Ted saying that was in no way demeaning or derogatory to what female friendship is. Yep. Like it wasn't putting it down. It was basically saying like, oh, you just shoot the shit in a very like different way that might seem like, uh, I don't know, vapid or um, without substance to some, but like that, that is to me, that's how a friendship survives. Like, yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that they can depict it in a like 30 minute episode that Rebecca and Keely do that with one another. And that's how they maintain their friendship on top of also working together. Um, which also leads into one of my favorite episodes, which is when Roy and Keely have started dating. They're living together. They also start working together and Keely wants space. And Roy takes offense to it at first, and then he apologizes. I know. I love um, that, too. That, that show handles apologies so well. It does. Too. I feel like we so should well. make all children watch this so that they grow up and know how to do it. Well, but And to your point about like counteracting female friendships, I actually think they do a great job of that regard in male friendships, too, with like the Diamond Dogs Absolutely. and like this whole idea of, you know, men can't share feelings like... I, all of my male friends can talk about their feelings. Like we're like, it's not something where you like, you sit there and scratch your balls and talk about sports. And like the undertone is, you know, like never stated. It's like, that's just not true at all. And so it's nice to see like, you know, for a show that dabbles in stereotypes, it actually turns a lot of them on their heads. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. I completely agree. And I think it also does the same thing with, you know, friendships between um, straight uh, male and females because yeah. of specifically talking about Ted and Rebecca. Yeah. Because when Rebecca starts talking with Sam and it's not revealed that it's Sam at that point, um, I feel like at least I had this, uh, you know, this moment where I was like, is it Ted? I know. I want it to be Ted. But I, I didn't either. Yeah, because it's like, because their friendship is so, uh, it's so perfect. And it also shows that you can just, uh, I think that's where it gets it wrong. It's like two people who are attractive and even can be attracted to one another can just be friends. Can just be friends. Um, and that's sufficient. And like not yes. every, not every male female relationship has to have like an underlying dynamic of like sexual tension. It can be, Oh, we can actually just be friends. That's like, there's a maturity there to the depiction of this show that I just, it's so nice. Or the same in that also you, again, you can have a sexual attraction to someone and not act on it. Yes. You can have an attraction and it also not take over the friendship element and dynamic. Like that it's not the most pressing and important element of your relationship. Exactly. Um, that it, can, it can be there and it can be a factor. But also like, I mean, the cliche that like you should be friends with your partner, like... Uh, so maybe they were setting it seemed like they could have been setting it up of like oh they're friends first and then romantic but that they weren't was such a great relief to me me too me too <laughs> um <laughs> because i think um yeah i i think they fill each other's gaps in a really beautiful way um that Rebecca's a little too hard and Ted can be a little too soft. But I also completely agree with you about men's emotions, whether it's from Roy fucking Kent, who doesn't show any, but then does really, he's a big softy. He is. I joke that, I joke that he must be a Scorpio because he has hard exterior and soft interior. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, I mean, my, my absolute favorite episode is the one at, um, Wembley, uh, because so much happens. The dad episode, essentially, yeah, that with was a good dad. One. Oof, oof, hit me real hard. <laughs> yep. Um, but 
everything from, you know, the previous tension between Ray and Jamie and Jamie's father comes in and incites a fight and Jamie punches him and Roy just gives Jamie the biggest hug and Jamie breaks down crying and it's it's absolutely gut-wrenching but also just so heartfelt and so sweet because you know they haven't gotten along they don't like each other but they're there for each other yep uh, and, and Jamie's been our villain in a lot of regards in a lot of the show and mm-hmm. a huge dick and yet we see where he's coming from like and in some ways it reminds me a lot of Orange is a New Black, where you got a backstory on every single character that made them fully, like a full person. And so you understood where they were coming from rather than j- yeah. it just being like bad versus good, you know, like a very George Bush type of like, we, we either, there are either good people or bad people in the world. This was, it's like, no, it's all gray. It's all gray. Um, well, anything else yeah. you want to say about the show before we wrap up our bit on Lasso? I know you and I just both love it, and so this is like a ringing endorsement, but still, it's a great show. Uh, it's it's so great. I think, I don't know, I could go on and on just about how, I think just how thoughtful everything is yeah. from the friendships and from the way they depict everything. And um I also really love, um, I think from like an acting standpoint, uh, one of my favorite characters is, I don't know if he actually has a name, but he's one of the fans um, Yeah. that you always see in the pub. Which I, I love, think, yep. Because I, lo- I love them as side characters. I think, especially in the Coach Beard episode, um, that they make such great sidekicks and to see them kind of come to the the foreground for once is really fun. Um, And I think it's just, it's so well-crafted and well-executed. Like, I think everyone does their part perfectly. Um, Agreed. Yeah. It is. Again, I could go on and on. It's just such a, it's... Me too. But it's like, you know, as your point, every character is it's like a team where everyone knows their role and every character plays their role perfectly without except for Nate obviously without having to over and he even he gives a great performance but just like everyone understands their role and doesn't try to outshine it and they get enough laid on so that even those side characters in the pub which I don't think we know their names or not are still fantastic so I think that's I think that's a great way to wrap this up um so thank you for all your insight into lasso and if you'll stay with me we I'm going to do my four quick segments here that I use uh that I have to end out every show so um my first my first thing here trying to have a civilization where I give you know like my rant of the week where something's bothering me is I can't believe people love hard seltzers the way that they do i i truly like i truly think that if you like hard seltzers you don't actually like alcohol like you just want to be semi-drunk or mildly drunk all the time because you are drinking carbonated high fructose corn syrup like it is the most minimally when i was back in college i'm so old that we had like zima's and mike's hard lemonade these are much worse and i just i feel like you know i don't want to be old man getting off my lawn here and you are younger than me but like the younger generations, like you guys need better taste. Like alcohol isn't something just to like get completely bombed on. It actually can taste good and hard seltzers undermine that and it needs to go in the trash. That That is my opinion on that. Um, that's so funny because uh, I completely forgot about Mike's hard until you said that. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like my, um, the last time I ever had a Mike's hard, I think I was 21. 
I drove to Denver and back in less than 24 hours, which is a six hour drive one direction from Santa Fe um, to see a concert. Uh, And I feel like I had like a Mike's Hard and like a summer shandy uh, at the concert, but then still had to drive six hours home after that. So yeah, it was definitely to get the job done and not for the taste. Um, But it's so funny because I actually have a friend who, um, you know, doesn't, she doesn't like beer and doesn't enjoy the taste of beer. And just recently she was at a bar in Utah and had um, a Coors banquet. <laughs> oh shit, I like this. And I gave her so much shit, but I was like, as a, as a server and a bartender, yeah. I now understand like the middle-aged white ladies that order a Coors cause it's easy. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's no nonsense. It's no frills. And I feel like, seltzer is the same where it's like it's no nonsense it's no frills it gets the job done and yes i think you don't actually like the taste or maybe you do but you don't want like a cocktail um but i also i fucking love beer so i do I too yeah I, exactly beer <laughs> but i think i have to really remind myself and like give some slack of like oh the, that's for people who who want to drink and don't like beer, which yeah. again, doesn't comprehend in my brain, but. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you brought up beer because the my Trust the Process segment of this show is since, you know, we met the last time I was in Santa Fe and Santa Fe is my favorite place um, in America, possibly the world. I just wanted, you know, I'll give my favorite things about Santa Fe. And one of the things is a place you and I went, Rowley's Ale House, which was is so good in Santa Fe because I have friends anytime they go to Santa Fe people ask me about it because they know how much I like it so like my recommendations are one you need to be hiking all the time uh, you have to go to Meow Wolf and I know you've been to the new um, I, I guess not a spinoff but Meow Wolf like uh, next next level thing in Denver so that's also like a recommendation but then you recommended Palomo as I was there, which is possibly now my favorite restaurant in Santa Fe. Lechosa, obviously. Uh, Delina's Bakery, Harry's Roadhouse. You also recommended that for the best pie of my life. And, you know, the next time I'm there, I have to go to Paper Dosa based on your recommendation, too. So those are just some of mine. Obviously, as the resident here, you should be telling everyone else what, what I missed. Oh, uh, I mean, those are all a great fucking start for so many different reasons. Um, but let's see. Uh Yes, Paper Dosa love. I love Jumbo Cafe. Yeah. Um, my favorite happy hour spot. I will say it's not that the drinks are particular particularly good, but I've been going there since college and the <laughs> atmosphere is wonderful. And it's um the Dragon Room, which is the bar across from Pink Adobe. It's like one of the only places that does happy hours in Santa Fe, which I know sounds bizarre, but small town probs. Um, <laughs> but $5 house margaritas from four to seven um, and $5 trios like chips, also guacamole, queso. And they come in these little edible bowls made out of corn chips. And they also have like a little popcorn maker in the corner where you can oh, help yourself to popcorn. Love that um, in a bar. Love that in a bar. The thing about it is there is a... There's a literal tree growing through the restaurant. Um, There's like this old tree that's grown through the restaurant and they have like live music and the patio in the summer. And it's, uh, everyone loves Coyote Cantina, which I do not, because I think their drinks are frilly and not great, which again, Pink Adobe, not the best drinks, but for what you get for happy hour, such a fun place, my favorite go-to. I love Tumble Root 
Uh, they're one of yes. the only distilleries in Santa Fe as far as drinks. Uh, Jumbo Cafe, East African, um, and Caribbean. Uh, oh boy, I think that I think that got no. it. Although there's probably the, plenty more. Those are great um, recommendations, and I always I always find it funny too. Like you can always recommend people to go to um, Marie's and just say get a uh, get a. Um, margarita there because those margaritas especially for those of us coming from low altitude places if you have any sort of altitude sickness and then you have a margarita there it will knock you on your ass and you will feel really possibly sick but it's still enjoyable yes yeah and and same with like um that's why i love la choza and the shed because they i think they blend a mix of a strong drink with a really good creative drink menu mm-hmm. um really good like if you want paloma is also probably my favorite but if you want just like a medium priced great cocktail and great new mexican the shed and lechosa don't disappoint and, the, um, and make sure you ask your server for the recommendation because at least in my experience they end up giving you great <laughs> recommendations okay <laughs> again i think i'm just biased because i'm a you know server bartender but um I will say also like having, I was not a mezcal person. I have an owner, the owner of Lechosa, who's like really enthusiastic about learning, did classes on mezcal and, you know, created these great cocktails. And now I really enjoy it because I'm always learning and always learning new things. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I learned, I had never yeah. had so tall before I was there and Paloma oh. turned me onto that. And now I'm like, oh, I don't actually, I don't like most smoky things, but so tall is like in my wheelhouse. So, so there, there's a ton of recommendations for anyone going to Santa Fe. Um, so hopefully um, you, people will enjoy those and I can't wait to be back. Um, all right. My sink into the couch segment where, you know, you need something when you're just lounging on the couch. Well, obviously succession is back and I can't wait. We're recording this Sunday night and I cannot wait to watch it. Cause I love that show. And I love any show that just shows how terrible it is to be a rich person, how awful they are. And also just how little fun they have. But um, since I, I feel like I haven't given enough book recommendations, I've really been enjoying this book set in the Southwest since we're going to keep with the Santa Fe theme called um, In the Distance by Hernan Diaz. Um, it's a really great Western. Um, it doesn't deconstruct, you know, the myths of the West in quite the forceful way that some of something like Blood Meridian would do. But it's just really well written. It was shortlisted for a few prizes a few years ago when it came out. Um, but I'm just getting to it now and highly recommend it. it it's really good about um, an immigrant who comes to America uh, and then just has to figure out he gets separated from his brother and has to like survive the Wild West. So um, that's my recommendation for that. Highly recommend. Um, and then final thing of the week, the poop the bed segment is, you know, there's no way around this. You and I both have been vaccinated. I can't get over Kyrie Irving refusing to play, giving up millions and millions of dollars just because he won't be vaccinated. It'd be one thing if he had an ideological stand, but he said he wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. And like, if there's anybody who's had too much of a voice in this whole thing, it's those who are anti-vax. So I have never liked Kyrie. I think he's a wonderfully talented player, but he's the most selfish player I've ever, selfish, one of the most selfish athletes I've ever seen. And this just to me was, you know, the proverbial icing on the cake since we're going to tie this back around to your baking. So there we go. That's, <laughs> that, that, that's how we're going to end this. Oh, anti-vaxxers just make me want to squirm. Yep. Just... Uh, yeah, it is. It is. It definitely is poop the bed. It's like, 
Uh, I, I was actually, um, similarly, I didn't realize until now I was late to the party on the, um, did you hear about the Nicki Minaj yep. fiasco? Yep. Oh my. Maybe, God. maybe we shouldn't be taking advice from celebrities on, um, vaccinations and things like that. Maybe we should leave it to the medical professionals. That's sort of the takeaway I'm taking from all this. So I think also if a like fucking prime minister of a country has to come on and say, uh, no, Nicki Minaj's cousin uh, probably has herpes. It wasn't a result <laughs> from the vaccine. <laughs> uh, also, just the amount of like celebrity influence that we like again that we listen to people who are get paid to act like our peers, but are very very much so not our peers the fuck at all. Um, as much as they say they want to be normal people, it's like, well, you're not. You're, you're not. Position yep. in power. You're not. You're not. Yeah. So maybe I shouldn't listen to you because it's not applicable to me. Well, <laughs> well, on that positive and uplifting note, I do want to say thank you so much for joining me. I love this discussion. We love Ted Lasso. Can't wait for it to be a third season. I, I do hope this show doesn't go on forever so that it's not one of those shows that has 10 seasons when it should have been three. Um but yeah. it's, you know, we all need something positive in our lives. And Ted Lasso, I think, has given a lot of people that. So I really appreciated the discussion. Thank you so much for enjoying, for joining me, Danielle. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's so fun. Well, and we will we will be back hopefully when the uh, third season comes out and we can discuss it more yes. then. So, all right. Well, thank you. That is all for the Insatiable podcast this week. And ne- coming up next will be a discussion on Squid Game, which is about as far as you can go philosophically from Ted Lasso that I can imagine. Uh, decidedly not optimistic. So thanks for listening. And again, thanks for joining me, Danielle. We, I will talk to you soon.